Wasn't that a beautiful reading? Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that you would bless the hearing and the preaching of your word. Give us, Lord, receiving hearts. Help us to behold you in your glory. Grant, O oh Lord, that we should, by the preaching of your word and faith in you, be cleansed, O oh Lord, consecrated, set aside for your work. Do this, we pray, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need a Bible, raise your hands, and one of the ushers will be happy to bring you one. And if you don't own one, that's our gift to you. Keep that, write your name in it, read it daily. Let me begin with a question. How do we glorify God? Sister Ashley got one up front here and one in the back there. How do we glorify God? The second greatest desire among God's people is to bring God glory. Now, bringing him glory means making God famous, honoring God, loving God, communicating to others a sense of the heaviness of God. That's what the word literally means in Hebrew. It's a kind of heaviness, a weightiness of God. I said that's the second greatest desire. Well, the first greatest desire among God's people is not to bring glory to God, but to see God's glory. Among the godly, seeing God in his splendor and majesty and beauty and greatness is the highest possible blessing. It reminds me of the lyrics from the song, For Your Glory. Tried to get Joy to come singing for me, but she's like, no, nah, not today, Pastor. But you remember how it starts. Lord, if I find favor in your sight, Lord, please, you hear the begging there, the, the pleading, please hear my heart's cry. I'm desperately waiting to be where you are. I'll cross the highest desert. I'll travel near or far. For your glory, I will do anything just to see you, to behold you as my king. See, that panting, longing after the glory of God is the heart cry of every true believer. But how can we see it? Where will we see it? And how do we bring honor to God? Well, to answer those questions, we return to our study in the book of Leviticus. We've come to the three chapters that now focus on the issue of God's glory, how to bring him glory, and what's necessary for seeing his glory. Now, there are two keys in this chapter. They're given to us in this section. They're given to us sort of in the middle of the section. The first key is this, that God wants to show his glory to his people. You see that in Leviticus chapter 9, verse 4, where it says there that he requires them to bring the, the peace offerings, the sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil. Why? He says there, for today the Lord will appear to you. God wants us to see his glory. The entire purpose of the sacrificial system, the entire purpose of God's plan of redemption is to bring us into his glory. That's the first key. Second key is this. God connects his glory to his word. God connects his glory to his word. Just look two verses later, chapter 9, verse 6. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. You see that? God commanded you to do certain things. That's his word. Why? that the glory of the Lord would appear to you. It is only after the word is obeyed that God's glory is displayed. Those are the two keys, and we can divide this section into three sections, sort of before and after those principles. Chapter 8 focuses on the consecration of the priests of Israel. Chapter 9, then, includes an ordination service for those same priests, 
And then chapter 10 shows us what happens when God's glory is not honored among God's people. So you've got consecration, ordination, and then in chapter 10, abomination. So if you're taking notes, we might think about these three chapters in this way. Number one, prepare for glory. Prepare for glory. That's when we're going to look at the consecration of Leviticus 8. Number two, we're going to observe the presence of glory. The presence of glory. That's in the ordination service of Leviticus 9. And then number three, we're going to talk about the protection of glory. The protection of glory, where we see the abomination in Leviticus 10. So first of all, prepare for glory. If we want to see God's glory, then one of the things we do is we prepare ourselves for glory. Before Israel can see God's glory through the priesthood, everyone then must be consecrated to the Lord. Now, when we consecrate something, we intentionally and exclusively dedicate that thing or dedicate that person to the service of God. When we consecrate something, we set it aside to be used only by God. Or you might say, we make it holy. In chapter 8, Moses is the main actor. Chapter 8, Moses consecrates Aaron and his four sons. These are the first priests in the history of Israel. In chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, notice there, the entire congregation comes to this consecration as it gets underway. The people of God are meant to have a keen interest in the selection of the leaders of the people of God. And there are four steps now to this consecration. We're going to see washing, anointing, sacrificing, and fellowshipping. You see that in chapter 8, verse 5. The first thing is washing. Moses washes Aaron and his sons. That washing was a, a symbol of cleaning, of, of cleanness. We see the same thing when the priest uh, declared the lepers clean after the leprosy has been dealt with. And the clothing that the priests wear, they're actually really beautiful. They're stunning in their color and exquisite in their design. These are the priestly garments that God commanded Moses to make in the book of Exodus. The priests dressed in layers. There was an on their garment made of linen. Then there's the coat that's mentioned in verse 7, worn over this long garment. And on top of the coat was a, a vest-like kind of garment called an ephod. The front and the back of the ephod were held together by two stones at the shoulder, and on each stone are written six names of the, of the tribes of Israel. And so the ephod came to symbolize the sort of unity of God's people. And over the ephod was another layer there called the breastplate. The breastplate also had the 12 names of the tribes of Israel written on it. And it was as if, as a priest going before God, the priest was carrying the people on his heart to God. The priest was a go-between between God and the people, a kind of mediator. And so he wore this turban. And this turban had a gold plate on it. And on that gold plate was written, Holiness unto the Lord. And so as he was standing between the people and God, he would represent God's holiness to the people, and then in turn, as he's making offerings, represents the people's holiness to God. And everything about this scene was meant to demonstrate his connection to the tabernacle and his connection to the holy worship of God. He carries in the breastplate the, the Urim and the Thummim. We don't know much about this, except that it was used uh, as sort of casting of lots. So whenever there was a difficult question or a complex situation and the people wanted to know God's will in that situation, they would cast the Urim and the Thummim and then interpret that uh, to understand what God's will was in the situation. So here's this priest adorned splendidly and colored with purple and blue and gold. Everything about his clothing in some way indicating the holiness of God and the holiness of God's people tasked with leading them and teaching them and sacrificing for them. They were meant to sort of be seen visually as identified with the tabernacle itself. The material of their clothing was the same kinds of materials used in the tabernacle itself. 
So first, Moses washes them and dresses them. Now notice, secondly, Moses anoints the tabernacle and the priest. We see that in verses 10 to 13. He, he anoints the, the tabernacle itself, the tent of meeting, and all of the furnishings inside of it, the altar and the basin, etc. And then he anoints the priests. In verses 10 and 11, he, he anoints everything with this oil, this special oil that's, that's sprinkled on everything. And verse 12 says, and he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's beard and anointed him to consecrate him. Aaron had a Philadelphia beard, you know, nice and lush and oily, right? This, this anointing had a couple of symbolic purposes. One, the word anointing is, is closely associated with the idea of choosing. So anyone who was anointed was symbolically sort of represented as someone who was chosen by God for that service. But also in other places of scripture, that sort of anointing on Aaron's beard symbolically gets associated with God's blessing, the overflow, the richness of God's blessing. And that's what we're seeing here is God blessed his people with a priesthood who is meant to help them come to him and to see his glory. Number three, in order to consecrate them, to make them holy, Moses makes offerings to atone for the priests. That's the longest section here in chapter 8, verses 14 to 29. So, so he washes them, so symbolic purity. He anoints them, symbolic of their being chose to this task. And then finally he, or not finally, next, he makes offerings to atone for them. And in the text, we're going to see him make um, three offerings, as it were. Verses 14 to 17, he gives the sin offering. And you'll recall from earlier chapters that the sin offering was made to remove the pollution of sin. In verse 15, Moses purified the altar itself. So even the very instruments used to make the offerings had to be pure before the offerings could make, be made. And so it was with the priests. They too had to be pure before they could offer any offering that would be pleasing to a pure and holy God. Then Moses, verses 18 to 21, makes the burnt offering. The burnt offering took away the penalty of sin. It represented reconciliation with God. It's the most fundamental of the offerings to, to make atonement between God and his worshipers. You notice that the burnt offering was consumed entirely by God. It belonged to God entirely. It's a way of appeasing and turning away his anger towards sin. And then finally, verses 22 to 30, Moses made a, a special peace offering. That's called here an ordination offering. Now, unlike the regular peace offering, which was um, sort of eaten partially by the persons and the families who made them, symbolic of their fellowship with God, in this ordination service, the peace offering itself is not eaten by others, but, but belongs entirely to God. And in verses 23 to 24, look there, we get the unusual part about Moses putting blood on the right earlobe and the right thumb and the right big toe of the priest. Now, apparently that symbolized the fact that the whole person was included in the consecration and dedication to God. What he was to give his ears to, what he was to give his hands to, where he was to go, was all consecrated, dedicated, set apart to the service of God. And you've probably noticed in each of these offerings, Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the sacrificial animals. And you recall that that symbolized their identification with those animals. It symbolized the transference of their guilt onto those animals as sin bearers. And so those animals took their place and suffered the judgment that they deserved because of their sin. Here we have a wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the true sin bearer who would take our place and carry the punishment of our sin so that we would be free from sin and guilt, free from the penalty of sin, free from the pollution of sin, and we would be free to fellowship with God again. The last thing in this consecration Notice Moses commands, verse 31 to 36, 
Moses commands the fellowship meal to be eaten at the tent of meeting. So the peace offering, the ordination offering, as I said a moment ago, was normally eaten by the entire family and all of Israel. But, but here, the offering was eaten only by the priests and only at the tent, the entrance of the tent of meeting. At the entrance there, the, the nation of Israel could see their priests having this meal and symbolically then see their priests in fellowship with God, in communion with God. And note verses 33 and 37. The priest could not leave the tent of meeting. And Moses gives two explanations. In verse 33, look with me, Moses says, And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. So going outside would have made the holy things of God common or unclean again. So they had to quarantine for seven days. But second, notice, Moses tells them in verse 37 that they could not leave so that you do not die. For the priests, during their consecration and ordination, holiness was a matter of life and death. They would pay a serious penalty for profaning making common the holy things of God. I love the way one commentator put it. He says, a man may defile himself in a moment, but sanctification and the removal of uncleanness is a slower process. Anybody have that experience? Of working, 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 pressing into the things of the Lord, changing a behavior, changing your mind, you seem to have been cruising along for a little bit, and it's taking you days and weeks and months to, to sort of get there. And in a moment, all of that can seemingly be defiled, made unclean. And so their quarantine is a physical picture of that. It takes us longer to press into holiness than it does into sin. Sin is downhill. Holiness is uphill. And so he says, stay in the entrance of the tent of meeting, eat this fellowship meal, commune with your God, who is your inheritance, be holy, as God is holy. So this is the consecration. And unless the people are consecrated to God, they really have no right expectation of seeing the glory of God. So the question becomes, Russ, are we prepared to see God's glory? Have we ever intentionally dedicated ourselves to the exclusive use of God, to God's service alone? See, sometimes, beloved, God's people are half-hearted creatures in their dedication, aren't they? We cannot fool ourselves into believing that an unconsecrated life could ever bring much glory to God. God is a God in whom there is no darkness at all. There is no impurity at all. He is a God who does not dwell in pollution. How are we ever to imagine that if our lives are common things, if our lives are worldly things, if our lives are undedicated and unfocused in service to God, how are we ever to imagine that this God who is holy and pure would cause his glory to rest on us, cause his glory to be seen? In us. If we would do great things for God and see the greatness of God, we must set ourselves aside for service to God. And just as a reminder of what the New Testament says about us, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you know these words well. Peter says there, but you, talking to the church, are a chosen race. It means you are anointed. You're a chosen race. Then he says, a, a royal priesthood, right? We, we are ordained. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You're consecrated. That's who we are. And when we are that, Peter says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. And this is the beautiful thing about the gospel. God does things for us that our minds have to catch up with. 
right? It, Peter says, this is what you are. It's a matter of fact. It's an indicative. You are, you are, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That ain't something you have to achieve. That's something you are. But the sort of practical realization of that, the living into that, has to catch up with that fact. That's the process of sanctification, of growing in holiness. And beloved, sometimes we got to preach to ourselves these truths until our lives catch up with it. Until our lives catch up with it. Peter sees us this way. The Bible sees us this way. That's because God sees us this way as holy before himself. And the question becomes, do we see ourselves that way? Or do we need a period of consecration? A period of consecration to God so that we might be prepared to see his glory. Forgive me, I'm trying to get this clip on here. It's aggravating. It'll be all right. We got to prepare for his glory. Number two, we want to observe the presence of his glory. That's what we see in Leviticus chapter 9 with the ordination service. So remember, they're in the tent of meeting seven days, eating the fellowship offering with God, uh, having been set aside by washing and anointing and sacrifice. Verse 36, chapter 8, verse 36 says, Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Now it's time for their ordination. It's the eighth day. Now, when we ordain someone, just to give you a, a quick definition, when we ordain someone, we bring them into an order. We bring them into a religious order. It could be a church or what have you. And when we ordain them, we not only bring them into that religious order, but we also give them authority to act as priests in that religious order. Now, notice while that while Moses made the offerings in Leviticus chapter 8, now in chapter 9, it's Aaron making the offerings. He's completed his consecration, and as we might say in the church, he's now preaching his trial sermon. Right? He's now sort of making his initial offerings in worship to God. Now, Leviticus 9.1 tells us that the ordination services said took place on the eighth day. Verses 3 and 4 call the people to come to the tent of meeting with their offerings. Now, everybody's going to start practicing offerings. Verses 5 through 7 say this, And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. And Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar, and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for the people, and bring the offering of the people, and make atonement for them, as the Lord has commanded. So with this, the cookout really takes place. So chapters 1 to 7, where all the instructions for the cookout, chapter 9 is the actual cookout itself now. All the offerings are being made, a fellowship with God and his people is about to be initiated, and this ordination service has three parts. Notice in verses 8 to 14, Aaron makes offerings for himself and his sons. He offers the sin offering in verses 8 to 11. Again, that's to remove the pollution of sin. Then he offers the burnt offering in verses 12 to 14. That is to achieve reconciliation and take away the penalty of sin. Now notice the important thing here is that Aaron, who represents the holiness of God and the holiness of the people, must make offerings for his own sins first. Before they can make offerings for others, right away, we see we have a priesthood that needs the same grace of God that the people need. And beloved, that ain't changed in millennia. The priests needed the grace of God the way the people did. Your preacher, your pastors need the grace of God the way you do. Okay? And it's also an indication right from the break that there's something weak in this priesthood. Right? If, if the priest who is holy, who symbolizes God's holiness and the people's holiness, if the priest needs offering for his sins, there's something already inescapably corruptible in this priesthood. This is why this priesthood, as Hebrews tells us, has to be replaced by a greater priesthood. 
These men first make offerings for their sins, then the sins of the people. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, but not so with Jesus. He goes into the Holy of Holies where he offers his blood as a sacrifice, not for his sins, because he had none, but for the sins of his people. And so they, they, in this ordination service, they make offerings for themselves first. Then, notice, Aaron makes offerings for the people of Israel. You see that in Leviticus 9, verses 15 to 21. Um, they, they make several offerings here, four offerings. Number one, verse 15, the sin offering. Number two, verse 16, the burnt offering. Then, number three, in verse 17, the grain offering, which was often associated with praise and thanksgiving to God. And then in verses 18 to 21, the fellowship offering. And this time, unlike the ordination offering, they, they actually eat the fellowship offering. The whole nation now is at the cookout. The whole nation is fellowshipping with the God who has redeemed them and made atonement. Third thing in the ordination. Aaron blesses the people and God's glory comes down. You see that in verses 22 to 24. Look there with me. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from the offering, the sin offering, and the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. It's a dramatic scene. You remember that Leviticus continues the story of Exodus. And at the end of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, the glory of the Lord descended on the tabernacle. And here now we see the glory of the Lord descending again among his people. God wants his people to see his glory. Now notice the steps here. First, Aaron blesses the people. One of the regular duties of the Levitical priesthood was to, was to bless the people of Israel. And in fact, in Numbers chapter 6, God gave the priests particular words to use in this blessing. So if you keep your finger here in Leviticus chapter 10 and just turn over to the next book in the Bible. So it goes Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Here, Deuteronomy, you've gone too far. Numbers chapter 6, God gives specific words in verses 22 to 27 that are meant to be used in blessing Israel. Okay, with me. You have it, say amen. That's most of y'all. There, Numbers 6, 22, we read this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus, or this is how, you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Now notice how the ironic blessing of number six focuses on God's face. Twice there, it mentions God's face. The Lord make his face shine upon you, and the Lord lift up his countenance. Another word his, for face, his countenance toward you. The, the, the priests were to bless the people in such a way that they reminded the people of the hope of seeing God's face as the highest possible blessing. And that's precisely what we see back in Leviticus chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, the conclusion of the ordination service. And it says there again, and Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. It's a tremendous scene. It's hard for us who walk by faith and not by sight to comprehend just how tremendous. 
But if you look at that last verse, that last sentence, you get a hint of it. The people saw the glory, not the first time, mind you. They saw the glory of the Lord, and the text says they shouted, not like black church shouting. They shouted in fear and fell on their faces before God. If, if, the, if the sort of core meaning of glory is weight and weightiness, then the weight of God fell upon the people and almost crushed them. It's a magnificent scene. And there are a couple of lessons I want us to draw from real quickly. Number one, first comes obedience, then comes glory. First comes obedience to God, then comes the glory of God. Number two, knowing how to glorify God is simple. Do what he commands. It ain't hard. It ain't rocket science. I love Christians who are desirous of glorifying God, and they ask the question, how can I glorify God? Question back at you. Have you read this book? Have you committed yourself to doing what thus saith the Lord? Because the easiest path for all of us to honor and magnify and beautify the Lord is to actually live like he is our Lord. To obey him in what he commands. So don't make it complicated. Don't make it spooky. There's no super mystical way to glorify God. You ain't got to be Aaron Rodgers going on a darkness retreat. You ain't got to do any of that. It just comes down to taking God at his word and putting it into practice. God has joined his glory to his rule. Here's the third application. We prepare for and we see God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, the old covenant with Israel didn't really prepare them for seeing God's glory. Again, that's why they fell down on their faces and, and shouted in fear when the fire consumed the offering. It's interesting. The fire consuming the offering indicates that God had actually accepted the offering. It indicated that atonement had been made for them and that they were reconciled to God and that they were pure before God and still they fell down in fear at the sight of the glory of God. That's because their corruption was only symbolically removed. The old covenant does not really prepare people for seeing God's glory. We need the new covenant for that. We need the covenant, just a fancy word for relationship. We need the new relationship of the New Testament in order to be truly prepared to see and apprehend the glory of God. Since Jesus has come, there is a new and better covenant. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Jump over to the New Testament here. You've got the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You get the book of Acts. You get the book of Romans. And you get 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 to 18. Moses is here writing to the Corinthian church, explaining to them, this new covenant, this better covenant, this better sort of apprehension of glory. And as he does that, he, he compares the new covenant to the old covenant, particularly on this point of glory. So I'll start in verse 17. We'll read down to verse 18, and I'll pull out a couple of um, verses for us to consider. Notice in verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, that's how he's referring to the old covenant, carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end. He said, that's the ministry of death. He's referring to when Moses comes down off the mountain, his face is shining, and the people can't stand in that glory, even reflected, the afterglow of God's glory, reflecting on Moses' face. He said, now listen, if that ministry had glory, even though it was coming to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. 
Indeed, in this case, what was once what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. That's the old covenant and the law, right? Because of the glory that surpasses it, which is the gospel in Jesus Christ. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. He continues in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we're very bold. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. In other words, when one turns to the Lord, you don't need a protective barrier between your faith and the glory of God. The veil is Removed, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Hallelujah. Some of y'all missed your place to shout. You see, what, you see what the Bible is saying there. We have come to see the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ by faith. And as we look upon the face of Jesus Christ by faith, something is happening. We are entering into or have entered into a greater glory, a glory greater than the old covenant, greater than the law, greater than the condemnation that the old covenant and the law bring. We, we have entered into a covenant of righteousness, not our own, the righteousness we have through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a perfect righteousness. In other words, a righteousness full of glory. And as we look to Christ and follow Christ, it is as we were looking into the face of Christ. And the text says in verse 18, as we look upon him, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Now, let me tell you, we are not being transformed from one high degree to a lower degree. We are being transformed from one lower degree to an ever higher degree of glory as we look into the face of the Lord, I say. You want to know how to glorify God? Keep looking at Jesus. You want to see his glory? Keep looking at the Lord. Keep looking at his picture in the word. And doing what the word says. In the new covenant, the reason this works is because we have a better high priest than the old covenant. Look with me at one other passage, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 14. So keep going right in your Bibles. You get to Hebrews, you get to 1 John, you've gone too far. Get to Peter, you've gone too far. James, too far. One more book back to Hebrews. Chapter 10, if you're new to the Bible, when I say chapter 10, that's the big number. Verse 14, that's the little number. Or verse 11, that's the little number on the page. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says. And, and I, again, Hebrews is the best New Testament commentary on the Old Testament. This is what he says. And every priest stands daily at his service. He's talking about the Old Testament priests offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. He's given us a sense of the futility of that system. And every day, over and over and over again, cutting animals, cutting their carcasses, putting them on the fire, sprinkling blood, taking them outside the camp to burn them, dumping the ashes every day, over and over and over again. The priests stand there doing their ministry, and the text says, notice, which can never take away sins. Well, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God because his work was finished, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There are no more offerings to be made. There are no more sacrifices to be made. 
Christ's sacrifice was so effective that it works for all time. Never needs to be repeated. Single offering, then he sets down. This is why he cries from the cross. It is finished. And this is why we rejoice. For we are being made holy. Look at verse 14 again. We are being sanctified. We are being made holy. Not by what we do, but by what Christ did once and for all. All the holiness, all the consecration we will ever need to see God we already have in Jesus' sacrifice for us. So all those who believe in Jesus now testify with the Apostle John when he says in chapter 1, verse 14 of his gospel, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And everyone who has this faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we have the guaranteed promise of seeing a future glory because Jesus prays for us in John 17, verse 24, these words, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. The answer to that prayer, beloved, is guaranteed. We will see the glory of the Lord in its fullness when he comes. We may fall down, but not from fear, from sheer delight. And we will discover this wonderful thing, that the glory we are looking at is also in us. What Christ is in us the hope of glory. Beloved, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. We're calling you to glory. We're calling you to beauty and splendor and weightiness and fame, not your own, but God's, who is willing to show it to you and to share it with you and to give you a part in it forever and has done everything needed to consecrate you and to purify you and to ordain you to his witness. He's done everything needed in the cross of his son, Jesus Christ, where he crushed his son for your sins and mine. Punished him in our place like those rams and bulls that the old priests used to lay their heads, their hands upon to transfer their guilt. So we have transferred our guilt to Jesus on the cross, laying hands on him by faith. Crushed his son, he judged him in our place. He died. Three days later, God raised him from the grave again in glory that we might share in his glory by faith and live forever in that glory in eternal love and joy. This is what God offers you this morning. This is what God wants you to see. Not the old system of bulls and goats, however intricate and interesting. He wants you to see the greater glory in his son and come to him, repenting from sin, turning away from sin, and putting your faith in him as your God and Lord. You do that, you live forever with God in his son. If you want to know more about what that means, talk to me after service. Talk to the Christian friend who brought you or invited you. Stick around. We love nothing more than to tell you more about this Jesus, the one who is full of glory, because he is the exact image and representation of God the Father. Amen? Or we should come to our final point for today. Here's the thing about God's glory among his people. That glory must be protected from defilement. When God's people live in abominable ways, God's glory departs from them. We see this in the early chapters of Ezekiel, for example, later in Israel's history. They built the temple, but they have corrupted the temple with idolatry. Ezekiel 8, 9, 10, and 11. By the time you get to the end of chapter 11, you read this word, Ichabod. It says the glory of the Lord departed from that place. God won't forever dwell with uncleanness, defilement. 
And that's what we see in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 to 3, in the account of Nadab and Abihu. Let's read it again. Leviticus chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Verse 1 reminds us that Nadab and Abihu are Aaron's oldest sons. As priests in the tabernacle, they have, in chapter 8, been consecrated. Chapter 9, been ordained. At the end of chapter 9, they have just seen the glory of God descend upon the offering and appear before all the people. And yet, <laughs> yet, verse 1 tells us that each of them, Nadab and Abihu, both of them, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which the Lord had not commanded them. And you saw the consequence. Fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. The stunning Stunning and abrupt change. We go from the height of worship and seeing the glory of God to this sacrilege in chapter 10 and seeing the death of Nadab and Abihu. Here's the problem. Nadab and Abihu did not treat God as holy. They offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which the Lord had not commanded them. Now, we don't know what this unauthorized fire was because chapter 10 verse 9, God forbids them to minister in the temple uh, under the influence of strong drink and wine. Some commentators think they were actually drunk offering this sacrifice. That certainly would have been displeasing to God, maybe. But verse 9 focuses on the fire that was offered, not on their drunkenness. Perhaps that fire was in some way mixed with something that itself was not holy or done in some way that God had not prescribed. In any event, notice that the problem was that it's not what God commanded. The consequence was the fire came down again. And instead of consuming the offering, as it had at the end of chapter 9, showing God's approval, it consumed the offerer, showing God's disapproval. They died for profaning the worship of God. We should take note of this. That the glory of the Lord is more important than the length of our lives. His holiness is more important than our happiness. His purity is more important than our preferences. And we have to ask ourselves if this is true of us. Do we think this way? That God's holiness and God's glory and God's splendor and God's renown and God's greatness is greater than me. It's more important than me. It's more important than what I want in life. It's more important than how I want to worship. Do we think that way? Can we, and if we think that way, can we tell it by how we approach God in worship? We cannot approach God any way we like, doing anything we like. See, our ideas about what's good in worship often end up in idolatry. And there are two ways to commit idolatry, beloved. It is to worship a thing that is not God as if it were God. That's how we often think of it. But it is a second way. It is to worship the true God in a false way. <laughs> You'll remember the golden calf incident with Israel. They were attempting to worship the true God. 
But somebody had their own ideas about how they were going to do that. Somebody said, I got a good idea. We tired of waiting on Moses. We don't know what's happening with him on that mountain. We don't like to see the glory on his face anyway. I got a good idea. Give me all the jewelry you got. Start a fire. I'm going to make a golden calf, something we can look at, something we can see and touch. And then we can worship that as the God who brought us out of Egypt. You know how that went. If you think about David, how often I hear people say, David danced before the Lord. Y'all know how that ended? David had decided to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, not the way God instructed, with the priests carrying the Ark on a pole. David thought, I can get it back quicker. Let's make a cart, a brand new cart, a luxury cart. Put the Ark on the cart, and we'll roll it back. David got folk killed. The only way to ensure that we offer worship to God that is pleasing to God is to worship God in the way that God explicitly commands. Is to escape our own thinking and our own preferences and our own desires to ask a different question. Not what do I want in worship, but what does God want? What pleases God? What honors God? What delights God? What does he accept as acceptable worship? Let me give him that. Because in this creator-creature relationship, in this God-worshipper relationship, it's God who decides how he is to be worshipped. Nadab and Abihu didn't get that lesson, and it's a shame. And God doesn't want us to miss that lesson. That's what he says in verse 3. Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near to me, he's referring to the priest now, I will be sanctified. Anybody hear their mama's voice? Oh, you're going to sanctify me, right? And before all the people now, and I was talking about the whole congregation, not just the priesthood, priest and people, I will be glorified. This is not negotiable. This is not debatable. This is not up for some kind of discussion. This is what it is. God says, now, if you're going to minister to me, you better sanctify me. You better treat me as holy. And if you're going to be my people, you better glorify me. You better honor me above all things so that I am made to be the majestic God that I am. Remember the second key to this section? God connects his glory to his word. Remember that? I wonder if you saw that running through these three chapters. It's in a phrase that's so easy to slide by. It's a little phrase, as the Lord commanded. You know how many times that appears through these chapters? At least 11. Look with me. Leviticus chapter 8, verse 4. They assemble Israel to attend the meeting. See there at verse 4 at the end. As Moses and Moses did as the Lord commanded. In chapter 8, verse 9. There we say, he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Chapter 8, verse 13. Moses washed and dressed the priest as the Lord commanded Moses. Chapter 8, verse 17. Moses offered the sin offering as the Lord commanded Moses. Chapter 8, verse 21, Moses offered the burnt offering as the Lord commanded Moses. Chapter 8, verse 29, Moses offered the ordination offering as the Lord commanded Moses. Chapter 8, verse 36, Moses, when it came to um, their consecration and them remaining in the tent, it says there, Aaron and sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, ties the promise of God appearing to the completion of God's word. Chapter 9, verse 10, Aaron offers the sin offering for himself as the Lord commanded Moses. Chapter 9, verse 16, and he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. Chapter 9, verse 21, Aaron sacrificed the peace offerings as the Lord commanded Moses. Eleven times in chapters 8 and 9, the Bible keeps drawing our attention to this. It's like a chorus being sung throughout these two chapters. Every paragraph, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded. Then we come to chapter 10, 
unauthorized fire, which the Lord had not commanded them. We should tremble in worship more than we do. We should be gripped with the realization that we are handling holy things in worship. And we should be impressed with the recognition that we should only do things that the Lord commands. There's a problem. New Testament and modern Christianity. We tend to think the Lord hasn't said much about how the church ought to worship. We tend to think that because Jesus has fulfilled everything that the sacrificial and ceremonial system uh, symbolized, that then there are no sort of requirements from God on how we worship. Not true. Christians coming out of the Reformation developed something called the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship. Say it until you write it down. The regulative principle of worship. And the regulative principle of worship says basically what we've been saying in this sermon, that we must offer God only that worship that he commands, and we must avoid any acts of worship that he forbids. So the regulative principle says biblical worship must be regulated or ruled by the word of God. It must be as Leviticus 9.16 says, according to the rule. The word regulative there comes actually from the Latin word regula, which means rule. Right? So right out of the Bible. But we want our worship according to the rule, regulated by the word of God. And the principle is helpful because it gives us three categories at least to think about. Elements. Forms and circumstances. The elements of worship, Christian worship, are the things that are commanded by God and must be done. Singing. Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, I think it is, commands us to sing to one another. Public reading of scripture. 1 Timothy 4, verse 13 says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, which we have heard so beautifully this morning and these mornings as we've been going through Leviticus. That same verse says, Devote yourself to exhortation and to teaching. In other words, to, to preaching. That's an element in Christian worship. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says that we are to lift up hands in prayer uh, and pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. So prayer is meant to be an element a required element of Christian worship. Giving. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes to the Corinthian church and says, uh, each person should set aside an offering each week so that when he comes, he can gather it and give it to the saints who are suffering famine in Jerusalem. So giving is an element of Christian worship. Baptism. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. The Lord commands baptism as we make disciples. And the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, verses 26 and 29. Well, actually, the Bible says a lot about what we are supposed to do, what's commanded of us in Christian worship. Those are the elements. If we're not doing those things, we're not offering worship that's pleasing to God. Okay? Don't get tired of public Bible reading. Don't, don't get tired or fight fatigue when you hear long prayers in church. We, we are doing something pleasing to God. It may be boring to sinful man and boring to the flesh, but it is what pleases God. Don't tire of hearing God's word preached. Don't, don't harden your heart when it comes to giving. Why? These are the things that pleases God, which he has commanded. So those are the elements. Now, those elements may take different forms. For, exa for example, uh, singing. We can have a choir, which we'll do on Easter Sunday morning. Amen? We can have a choir. We can have a praise team, which we have on most mornings. Uh, we can have an individual soloist. Right? Different forms. We can have different instruments played at different times. Those are forms that are, that are being used to fulfill the element. Or preaching. Preaching can be expositional, just going verse by verse through the Bible as we have here. Or it can be topical. I could come in and preach a sermon, as Tim did so wonderfully last week, on the Holy Spirit. And sort of unpack that topic. And so there are different forms that it can take place. Now here's the problem. 
churches tear themselves up arguing about forms and don't give thought much to the elements. The forms is where you should experience freedom. The elements are where you must do what God has said do. Right? And then there are circumstances. Things that are not commanded in Scripture, things that are really matters of prudence. Do we have our services at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock? Well, that's a circumstance. We decide that by wisdom and prayer, and we offer that to the Lord in faith. So the regulative principle gives us ways of categorizing the things we do in worship and keeping us focused on the main thing so that we might offer prayer to God that is pleasing to God. Let me give you a few benefits here. This is, these are the reasons why we, we try to practice this here. Let me give you a few benefits of the regulative principle. Number one, as we said, it keeps us from idolatry. Beloved, our thoughts are not God. His thoughts and ways are higher. I don't care how good we think our ideas are. They're just not better than God's. Right? So it keeps us from idolizing even our own thoughts about worship. Here's second benefit. We've already said it. It pleases God. Ain't that what we're living for? To please God? If he gives us a direct path to his pleasure, we ought to take it. Right? It pleases God. Number three. This is important. It frees us from our preferences. Now, I believe the hardest job in the Christian church, not the preacher's job, not on Sunday morning. Hardest job in the Christian church is the worship leader's job. It's the choir's job. It's the praise team's job. Why? Because all y'all got preferences. And you don't mind expressing them. If I say something goofy up here, You'll walk by me at the door. You won't say nothing. You shake my hand and thank you, Pastor, or, or you try to slip by without even making eye contact, right? You, you let me go with it. But if the praise team sings something, you don't, I don't like that song. Why we, why we sing that song? You know, I, we all these choruses, all these hymns. Are, and, and you know what? We people over here don't like hymns. We people over here don't like choruses. Five people over there don't like solos. Ten people over here don't like choirs, right? And it will be the death of Essie and Taco and the whole worship ministry trying to give you what you prefer. Someone said, I don't know the secret of success, but I do know the secret of failure, and that's trying to please everybody. They have an audience of one to please. It's God. And so we are freed by the regulative principle from trying to bind each other to our preferences. Right, which usually becomes a, a wrestling match in the flesh about who's going to get their way. Number four, the regulative principle eliminates the burden of creativity. You ain't got to be slick to worship God. You just got to be faithful. I, I've, I've had the privilege of talking with pastors around the country, around the world, different kinds of pastors, different kinds of churches. I'm always a little bit gobsmacked by those pastors I've sometimes talked to, we talk about what's your week like, how do you do this, how do you plan that, who have production meetings for their worship service. Now, sometimes that's just the word they use for a very necessary meeting. Everybody got to be on the same page, you got to plan, you got to get it right. But sometimes you get the, the clear impression that it, it, is, it is an entertainment-driven meeting. How are we going to be entertaining? How are we going to be slick? How are we going to hook the people with something? Here's the thing, beloved. What you win people with is what you have to keep them with. Right? So if you're worn to this church by a banging choir, and then for some reason in God's providence we can't have a choir, guess, guess, guess where you're not worn to anymore? What you win people with is what you have to keep them with. Right? So it eliminates the burden of creativity, and that's good news for a brother like me who ain't got no creativity. I'm just going to bring you the book, okay? And, and if we win you with the book, then you're one indeed. Okay? Last thing, regular principle. It can be expressed in every culture without being imprisoned by that culture. See, God wants a people from every tribe, language, nation, etc. right? He wants his praises to go up in every tribe, nation, language, etc. And guess what that's going to mean? It's going to look different in every tribe, nation, language, etc. 
So he's got to have, he wants to have a, a, a principle of worship, an approach to worship that gathers us together without us having these cultural conflicts, right? And without us being imprisoned by our culture. So we can sing some CCM or some rockabilly or some gospel. Oh, I love what they did in adding that little jazzy little uh, a tune this morning, Grace Alone. I love what they did. You know, we, we can sing that and we can, we can appropriate a little Frankie Beverly and Mays. Right? And, and put some biblical lyrics to it. Right? And, and, you know, sometimes people get upset about things like that. But let me tell you something. All of you who love to sing the hymns of Martin Luther, Martin Luther spent his free time in the pub. And most of his hymns actually take the tunes, a popular tunes, in the pub. So I don't mind. If we ain't going to sing Frankie Beverly, we ain't going to use that tune. Okay, we got to strike out a mighty fortress as our God. But the regulative principle frees us from that. It frees us from that. It, it says, yes, we can take the cultural things of the world, repurpose them for the glory of God, and God be honored by it from every culture, from every people, from every language. But I'm going to tell you what the regulative principle requires, what Nadab and Abihu didn't have, what God's people need to have, if we're really going to benefit from it. It requires spiritual maturity. It requires us to be spiritually mature. To not be threatened that somebody else has a preference because we're going to bring it back to God's word. To not be threatened that we didn't get our way. It was never about our way. It was about God's way. But the regular principle calls us into this kind of maturity that we die to ourselves and live to Christ. And we worship him according to his word. Final thing about the regular principle, and we're done. It's a principle about the gathered worship of God. It's not a principle about your small group meeting. It's not a principle about the campus ministry meeting. It's not a principle about what you listen to, you know, in the car. There are many things you can listen to on your on your iPod. Or, do people still got iPod? I don't know. No, what do y'all use? Your phone? Okay, it's many things. <laughs> it's many things people listen to on their phones privately that they are individually edified by. Praise God. That might not be appropriate. that too gives us freedom in that way. So when we gather, beloved, let's gather to worship the Lord as he commands.